Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare. My name is Stan Schwartz. I'm a medical doctor specializing in infectious diseases, and I'm the chief medical officer at Zero. I've experienced healthcare as a medical student, as a teacher, as a researcher, as a provider, as an administrator of a large clinic, and as a consultant to business. And unfortunately, as I get older, increasingly as a patient, I think I've got a 360 degree view of healthcare. We've got a great guest today. He's someone, he's someone who's really fun to speak with about healthcare and business. And let's make this as interactive as possible. If you have any questions, put them in the chat at the bottom of your screen, and we'll try to take them uh, all uh, as we go along. But before I introduce our guest today, Dr. William Paiva, just one quick disclosure. I've known him for several years. His venture enterprise is an investor in Zero, and he's a director in Zero Health. But we're here today not to talk about that. We're going to talk about his passions at the intersection of business and health. So William, you're, in a, you're a venture investor and you're center at Oklahoma State University. Center for Health Systems Innovation brings together the business school and the medical school. Again, the intersection of business and health. What is that intersection? And regarding today's title, what is the edge we're talking about and how far are we from from it or from falling off it, William? <laughs> yeah, no, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for having me on your, uh, your uh, podcast and thank you for your kind words. And so let me, let me shape a context of the entire, uh, the remainder of the podcast, because I think it's good to know the lens that I look at the world through. So initially started my career out, I wanted to be an academic scientist and I did a PhD in molecular biology and then did a postdoctoral fellowship in neurobiology and then Kind of along that journey, I decided I wanted to move to the business side of science. And so I've kind of had my whole career kind of existing in kind of two worlds. And so I ended up going to business school up at Dartmouth and did a MBA. And then it really did exactly what I wanted to do, which was to end up at the intersection of business and, and healthcare or in business and science or whatever, however you want to cut the deck. Um, and then after graduating from business school, I uh, worked at JP Morgan in investment banking, worked at Merck and the pharmaceutical company in business development. And then for the last 21 years, have been in the venture capital industry running a fund called OLSF Ventures, where we invest in uh, early stage healthcare opportunities across the board. So we'll do drugs, we'll do devices, we'll do diagnostics. We'll do tech-enabled services uh, through the fund, and we have uh, operated that fund for 21 years. Um, I also run a health innovation center through Oklahoma State University that was endowed by the founding CEO and lifelong CEO of Cerner Corporation, Neil Patterson. Neil was a graduate of Oklahoma State University. And the center sits between the business school and medical school, which makes it truly unique because what we wanted to focus on was on the business of healthcare. Once again, you're seeing a common theme here where you know, William has spent uh, you know, 25, 30 years of his professional career existing at that intersection of business and healthcare. And within that center, we have a stated mission of transforming rural and Native American health. And I won't go into all the 
reasons how we landed on that. But we really focus in two areas. One is to look at how do we improve uh, rural healthcare, um, primarily at the primary care level. How do we build primary care capacity out at the rural market? And then the second is how do we use advanced predictive analytics solutions to provide some additional subspecialty capabilities in rural markets, mainly trying to address the two biggest problems in rural, which is the lack of primary care and the lack of subspecialty care. And so that's what we do. And that's the two hats I wear. So everything I go, everything I look at into this world is focused intimately on that uh, through a lens of healthcare innovation, finance, and entrepreneurship. Um, regarding the edge, I refer to the edge as really just pushing healthcare out to the consumer. And so it's not an edge like an edge in terms of a cliff and we're going to fall off on the, uh, the other side. It's really how do we push more and more healthcare uh, to the end consumer through the consumerization of healthcare. And so I refer to the edge as pushing it out. And, you know, you can think about other analogies from other industries. If you think about the computing industry where a lot of the computing infrastructure was centralized, you know, back in the late seventies and early eighties, you know, we would do our punch cards and we would take it to the central um, data center and somebody there had the expertise to run the data center and you had the infrastructure there and we would um, uh, give them our cards and they would run the program and then we'd go back and redo the cards. And then, you know, that was the iterative process. And, and you think about it, but what have we seen over time? Well, we've seen computing technology move to the desktop and to the laptop into the uh, smartphones and it continues to push into the wrist and we continue to see it pushing further and further out to the edge and the data centers are gone. And at least as it relates to that kind of computing infrastructure. And I can see a similar parallel to healthcare, right? For a long time, we've always gone to a central facility for healthcare, right? Whether it be the large health system, because that's where the assets and expertise and people were and we're starting to see gradually more and more of that healthcare get pushed out to the edge. And let's don't, let's don't uh, discount the role of this device in pushing more and more healthcare out to the edge, both in terms of the computing infrastructure that's uh, there, as well as connectivity, as well as the application layers that are going onto it. So that's the edge that I'm referring to. And how do we, and, and I don't see that stopping. I see continual push to push healthcare out to the edge, which is honestly where it needs to be, where people are empowered to manage their own healthcare and aligning the healthcare incentives with the people that are actually managing it. So if you're listening live, please put your uh, questions in the question and answer at the bottom of your screen, and we'll try to answer them live as best we can. You know, when we've spoken before about healthcare getting decentralized, you know, I, I gave you an example of a company that, you know, has younger employees and you know, they use a digital health, you know, a text and voice for their employees. And then if their employees need to see a doctor, they have urgent care or emergency room. So the employees have all this access, but they don't actually have a doctor. What do you think that's going to, what's the impact of that going forward in terms of fragmentation of care and moving away from what we always thought was important, the medical home? Yeah, I think what we're going to see is a movement towards let's 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 refer to it as the digital medical home. I don't it's it's not an either or. I mean, the medical home moved us in the direction we needed to go, right? And then as we continue to advance and develop advanced uh, technology layers for um, diagnosing, staging, and monitoring patients, whether it be through devices at the home or through the smartphone or application layers on the smartphone, as we're able to gather more and more of that information about the patient, then 
these people don't necessarily need to go to our old traditional mentality of a medical home is you can envision a world where we're actually going to start moving to the next rung, which is enabled by technology layers, applications, et cetera. And that's to the digital medical home, right? And as we continue to push further and further out to that, then I think what you're going to see is a hop from the, the medical home under the traditional sense, how you and I would think about it to the digital medical home, because it's enabled by the technology layers of the apps, the algorithms, the devices. We just looked at something the other day that is, is you know, there's been a big push to have ultrasound at home. And, you know, the fundamental limiting factor was a lot of the technology around being able to deliver that. And I just saw a deal a couple of weeks ago where I think they're finally at the point where they can deliver a cost-effective, very, uh, very uh, high quality ultrasound at the home that connects to the smartphone and you could do an ultrasound at the home. And if you're pregnant, you can do your own ultrasound and send in the image and don't need to go to the, to your own as existing medical home if you're a pregnant uh, female. Right. And so I think, I think we'll continue to, I, you know, I think the digital medical home is just a logical extension of the medical home enabled by technology evolution. You know, I can hear doctors right now and, and other healthcare people saying, you know, we've given people the ability to manage their own investments by themselves and many of them go broke. You know, if you manage your own health, who's gonna keep you from going dead? Well, that's a that's the common, um, that's, the, that's a very common, um, so, you know, when we moved from having our re retirement plans, our 401ks, our IRAs, our employees' uh, retirement benefits, that used to all be managed, you know, by a large fidelity pension fund, whatever, in the the consumer or the individual employee had no control over that. But over time, we've seen, I mean, I don't know that there's very many people out there who can't manage their own retirement accounts through a 401k and an IRA, et cetera. But that's also been enabled by um, people becoming more informed about how to manage retirement assets, number one. Number two, the tools and layers on top of it to make sure that uh, they do it in a prudent manner. And if they choose to make a risky bet, at least they know the risk that they're taking, right? And so they're empowered as individuals to make their own decision. It's a, you know, under the heading of a free market, right? The same will be true in healthcare. And it's always a, you know, it's not a, everybody wants to jump from here to death, right? Like, but there's, there's step functions along here, right? Where we gradually allow consumers to manage their, you know, basic wellness. And then we move from there to primary care. And then we move from primary care to, you know, um, low acuity specialty care. And then we move, you know, like it just keeps stepping along here. The reality is doctors need to, you know, there is rarely an example where if the industry gets disintermediated, that the industry actually doesn't benefit from it, right? So when LegalZoom came out, the lawyers panicked. Right, because they were like, "Oh no, wait a minute! We need people coming to our offices to file LLC documents and company formation documents." And and they got they got scared because they were like, "Holy cow! Now I can go into LegalZoom and for forty five dollars I can file an LLC document." That's where I used to get paid five hundred dollars to do it. So their initial thought was, "I lose that," but what they ended up finding out is the best thing that happened to the legal industry is LegalZoom. Because now you have a whole bunch of people forming a whole bunch of companies, starting companies, and then that then leaded, led to higher margin legal work like financings, acquisitions, if you want to go on the downside, bankruptcies, et cetera, right? So actually LegalZoom, if you look at the data, was one of the best things in driving 
uh, lawyer revenue from low margin business to high margin. And remember we talked about step functions. The reality is a lot of the low margin diagnostic stuff that gets done, honestly, doctors, if they actually took a hard look at it, would probably figure out they're actually losing money on some of that stuff. But, and that's why it's good to offload that and then help you find the higher margin patients. So ultimately they will be the benefactor of it. If once they get over this initial, you're disintermediating the doctor and then they, they scare you by saying that that's a bad thing because people die. You once told me that, you know, we're kind of replacing the family doctor with the family doctors morphing into the family health advisor in this age of shared decision-making and individual responsibility. Yeah. 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 There's kind of, um, I, I jotted them down. I kind of, what I call the seven drivers of, uh, consumerization of healthcare. Um, you know, and there's a little bit of a generational thing, you know, that, you know, our, our grandparents, you know, they were comfortable going to the central facility and the doctor told them what to do. And they were more recipients of the health information. And it was very one, one way transacted. Right. And, but now the next generation, you know, and I kind of sit between both and, you know, the younger generation who are technology natives who have grown up with technology, you know, they're quite honestly, um, they're not going to be tolerant of the old model, right? So when I think about the drivers, right, one is, you know, kind of the drive to learn and manage uh, their individual's own health and wellness. That's a big push of, of that generation drive to connect, you know, engage and connect with other consumers in a similar situation. Used to be if you were diagnosed with blank, unless you knew somebody with blank, you may not have anybody to commiserate with. But now with these social networks that get created around disease states, then you can connect with people. The third is to, we talked a little bit about this, the drive to take control over your health issue. Um, the fourth is the drive to help to self-manage health information. Consumers want to own and manage their own self uh, health information. They also have a big push to making sure the information is accurate. Uh, so that's a fifth, uh, why they want to be involved in it. Um, they also, to your point earlier, Stan, they want to collaborate with their health providers in a consultative role rather than you just telling me what to go do and I go do it, right? Matter of fact, one, my doctor told me recently that he feels like consumers in his time as a physician have gone from being recipients of health information to actually wanting to be immersed in the the doctor plays more a consultative role in the overall um, uh, uh, medical process. And then the last is just a general drive towards consumer engagement. And those are the things that are, I think are, are pushing the individual motivations towards controlling your own uh, healthcare uh, journey. You know, in one of our previous conversations, we talked about the work you guys are doing at the Center for Predictive Analytics and, mm -hmm. you know, how you are refining who needs to get what rather than having blanket, you know, everybody with diabetes needs to get this yep. every year and so forth. You guys are actually able to improve quality and reduce cost by, by, by relating screening to risk. Could you talk yeah. about that? Yeah. So it was a, a super exciting program that we ran. So, um, as part of the founding of the center, Cerner donated to us a large clinical data set that has clinical data and a HIPAA compliant de-identified data set for 63 million patients collected over 20 years. And one of the big challenges in rural markets is management of diabetic complications, right? I call it the lack of ologists, right? There, there are no ophthalmologists, neurologists, nephrologists out at the rural markets that can manage diabetic complications, right? 
And so most primary care docs feel pretty good about being able to manage uh, 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 a diabetic's blood sugar, but uh, feel at a loss for the diabetic complications. So we decided to systematically go after uh, diabetic retinopathy. Now, a lot of people are focused on uh, how do we provide algorithms on top of the images. And, but the big challenge is still only about a third of the diabetics actually ever get imaged. So two thirds of the market never get imaged for, and as a physician, you know, as a diabetic, you should get your annual eye exam to identify uh, proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So about one third get imaged, two thirds don't. So we said, well, let's go after the two thirds of the market that's never getting imaged. So we went into our data and, and that's the one great thing about everything that we're doing in this digital health uh, transformation. I mean, we literally have gone through an industrial revolution in digital health. You know, 20 years, as a matter of fact, there was a stat I saw that over the last 10 years, we've gone from about 15% of our health systems running advanced digital health uh, information systems to well over 90% in 10 years. And that is just a remarkable transformation, right? So because of that, now we've got data in a digital format we can do things with. So we went back and pulled digital data from uh, diabetics where we had their ophthalmic information as well. And we now have an algorithm that with greater than 90% sensitivity and specificity, looking at variables pulled from their demographic information, their comorbidity and basic lab. So normal lab that's collected in a primary care visit, the CBC lipid panels. We can pull eight variables out of those data sets and with greater than 90% sensitivity and specificity, I can predict whether or not that patient is headed towards proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And to your point, now we can live in a world where rather than telling hundred diabetics in your primary care panel, to go get your eyes imaged, knowing full well, maybe 20 will go do it and 80 won't. We can now run the algorithm on top of all 100 patients with them not doing anything else, just the data that's sitting in their EMR. And we can identify the five that are truly at risk for DR to then tell them to go get screened based on our algorithm to then find the one that actually probably has diabetic retinopathy. Because right now, what they do is they try to screen all 100 of them at $85 per screen. So that's $8,500, 85 times you know, uh, 100 is $8,500. Now we can narrow it down and say these five. So we reduce the cost, but we actually focus our finite resources on the people that truly need it, because that's the other big limiting factor in healthcare is the availability of providers, right? Now, if I can take my resources and rather than focusing them on the 100 in case they have it, and focusing them on the five that do have it, saves costs for the system. It, it gets the patients into the setting they need to get into, and it focuses our finite resources on the patients we need. So it's a, it's a great example of the digital health uh, divide and how we can take digital data to solve these problems. So in, in light of what you talked about, the democratization of healthcare, when your algorithms run, and you've identified those people, are you notifying the people or would you notify the doctor of those people? In the, in the current deployments we have, it would all be managed at the, at, the, at the physician level and then have them reach out to the, to the patients. But there's no reason it couldn't simply be at the patient level too, right? There's no reason to, 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 to necessarily go through the doctors, but initially our current deployments would either be go through the self-insured employers through the payers, through the systems, down to the patients. But uh, there's no reason the consumer couldn't be empowered with it. So we've also talked about, you know, 
if I've got big buildings and big clinics and lots of rooms and hospital beds and exam rooms, and we're facing a digital age, what do I need to do as a health system or as a hospital to really get ready for that? Or am I going to become, you know, the mall of the future, so to speak? The, the blockbuster of old? Where the they shopping didn't, mall, you know, where half are <laughs> closed now. Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge for any incumbent, whether it be healthcare or any other industry, is how do you make sure that you don't get disintermediated um, by um, a new startup industry in your category, right? And so, you know, my big advice to health systems and incumbents is just sit back and think, if I was outside looking in and I was going to disintermediate the large health systems, how would I do that? And then whatever that is, I would go do that if I was the large health system, because you would rather you would rather disintermediate yourself than have somebody else do it to yourself or, or do it to you. Right. So, I mean, the big challenge they're going to have, honestly, is, is, you know, the old sunk costs shouldn't affect future decisions. Right. And the reality is sunk costs always affect future decisions. Right. How many times do we fall into that trap? Right. But they've got this huge capital investment in the big infrastructures and there's a model that's currently in the healthcare delivery model that aligns with that, right? And that includes getting 100 diabetics to show up to get their eyes screened for $85 a piece to pay for all this big infrastructure. Whereas in the model I articulated, they're not going to like that model because it actually reduces the volume to them. But if they don't embrace that and try to plagiarize it or disintermediate themselves, somebody else is going to do it to them, right? And so you, that, that is the big advice is to look outside in and whatever they, whatever you see your weaknesses are, by God, go do it because somebody's getting ready to do it to you. So you've talked about self-funded employers, you know, being proactive yep. and all that. So JP Morgan, Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway did the big experiment with Haven. And after two yep. years, they shut it down, said it couldn't be done. I mean, what's, you know, the people listening to this call, uh, this podcast may be, you know, small and medium-sized companies, you know, what stroke do they have to really make a difference and have a seat at the table? Well, I think they can do that through their own, you know, management of their own employees and their own employee spend. Yeah. I mean, the uh, Berkshire JP Morgan Amazon thing was, you know, I, I think it was a, 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 a great goal, a lofty goal, but probably too much of a goal. I mean, it was a boiling the ocean problem, right? So um, I think the discrete approach that a self-insured employer can do to manage their healthcare spend of their, you know, and, and you need to be at least, you know, 250 to 500 employees to really have a balance sheet large enough to self-insure, right? And if you can do that, then it's really smart because you can control your healthcare costs, you can align the incentives of the employees to better manage their healthcare costs. And then you have a more uh, healthy employee. So you get better productivity out of your employees. So the self-insured employers, if they want to move into this, there's lots of benefits to them to do it. And then honestly, it's the fastest growing segment of healthcare as more and more large employers have figured out that um, they can self-insure and control healthcare costs rather than fully insuring. And no disrespect against the fully insured health insurance industry, they play a role. I'm just, if I'm a larger self-insured employer, I think there's an argument I can self-insure and, 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 and get what I need. Now, if they do that, they have to make certain investments, right? Like they need to invest in 
you know, clinic infrastructure through a nearside onsite clinic type model where they provide wellness and basic primary care for their physicians, right? They, uh, they need to think about how do they manage healthcare data? So the, the governance of that, they need to, if they've got various partnerships with different vendors, they need to think about the interoperability of those vendors in terms of data. I mean, the, there's a little framework I jotted out for self-insured employers. There's four things if they want to make move into this journey of self-insured employer. One is they got to think about the person-enabled healthcare and what that means to their employee. Number two, add the analytics to it so they can predict uh, future healthcare uh, spend. Three, think about uh, governance and workforce. And four, focus on interoperability between these uh, different vendors. And then they can uh, stand a better chance of controlling their healthcare costs. And oh, by the way, every employer out there, whether they realize it or not, is in the healthcare industry. You know, the, the, the stat I always remember citing is if you look at General Motors, they have more costs in a car related to healthcare spend than they do steel. So they are in the healthcare business, whether they realize it or not. And the other thing I mentioned in the last podcast, which I think you liked, uh, Dr. Schwartz, is when I said most self-insured employers pay, uh, plan, uh, they, uh, they actually do what I call faith-based healthcare planning when mm-hmm. it comes to their cost, which is, oh God, I hope next year's costs aren't as bad as this year. <laughs> so, you know, if they can get involved in it, they can better manage it. And then they're not hit at the end with double digit uh, increases in costs. One thing, um, you know, your fund was an investor in the past in uh, a digital, I mean, a, a direct primary care organization, Care ATC. Yep. How did that experience, that investment, inform your, your thinking about what employers should do going forward in terms of should they have their own physicians? Or. Yeah. It, so we, you know, we had, in, in full disclosure, I was an investor in a company called Care ATC, and we helped self insured employers buy. Uh, run, you know, building, running, and staffing uh, near site, sorry, near site and on site clinics. So if the employer was big enough, we would have an on site clinic for them. If they weren't big enough, then we would do a, a, a shared site where we would do a cooperative between two or three employers in a given geography. And we would actually then help provide, you know, basic wellness and primary care services for these self insured employers. And then have partnerships with others for uh, specialty care downstream. And what we learned in that journey was it worked great because the employee, the biggest hurdle, honestly, was that employees were like, you know, I don't know if I want my employer having that much information about me, right? Turns out I keep reminding them if you're a self-insured employer, they already have all your health information about you. So it's that train has left the station, number one. So that is a barrier that came up or a hurdle, but we were able to work through that with many of the employers. The second was for the employers was, you know, how do you give the right incentives to employees to participate in it, right? So in other words, you can get, you know, do incentive programs where, you know, if you participate in this, it'll reduce your monthly uh, healthcare direct costs by 20 bucks a month or something like that. So there's, if you not only is self-insured and then have these partnerships, you know, finding a way to have incentive programs for the employees to engage was also equally important. So if I'm listening to this podcast today and I'm getting the fever to make something happen and I'm in a self-funded employer, what's the very first thing I should do tomorrow morning? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, it, you, you have to think, uh, 
like, number one, what are your goals out of this? Is your goals to uh, provide high quality care for your employees to reduce employee turnover? Is it to uh, uh, provide that to improve um, uh, employee engagement and creating a, a, a great place for worker productivity? Is it to reduce costs and control costs? But depending on what those metrics are important to you uh, will dictate you know, what you should go do, right? So you can run the gamut of everything from, I'm gonna build it internal, you know, I'm gonna self-insure and I'm gonna use my balance sheet to, to, uh, to uh, pay for, you know, ordinary healthcare. And then I'm gonna partner with a TPA to, you know, process my claims. And then I'm gonna uh, engage a stop loss carrier to insure against major medical, right? And then on the delivery side, you know, do I build internal my own infrastructure or do I partner with a company like Carry TC or others that are out there? And it's not a commercial for Carry TC. I'm, I'm, I'm out of that investment and there are other vendors out there that are doing it. Obviously Carry TC does a great job, um, but and are there other uh, technology solutions I wanna layer onto it, right? And then the last thing is, um, you know, how do you think about um, the management of these different vendors from an interoperability perspective and a governance and kind of et cetera perspective? Th those are the things you need to think about. Thanks very much. Um, William, we appreciate your letting us visit with you today. If any of our listeners sure. would like to learn more about what you do, how do they contact you? Yeah, so I you can uh, you can either email me. Uh, I can't guarantee turnaround time, but I guarantee I respond to all emails in 24 hours. That's my rule. So I, I try to guarantee a 24 hour turnaround time. But I uh, through my venture fund, it's William at OLSF Ventures, um, and the OLSF stands for Oklahoma Life Science Fund Ventures, and Ventures is plural.com. So William at OLSFVentures.com. Through my innovation center, it's WPIVA, P-A-I-V-A, P as in Paul, A-I-V as in Victor A, at okstate.edu. Thank you very much. And you, can obviously, and you can obviously find me on LinkedIn and et cetera. So connect with me through LinkedIn as well. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody listening at home for joining us today here at Zero Studios. And we look forward to our next episode in June. Until then, if you haven't been vaccinated, please get the shot. And if you've been vaccinated, Thanks, and see if you can get someone else who hasn't been vaccinated to get it. And we'll see you again next month. Thanks, everybody, and take care. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.